1: The U.S. announces a broad range of retaliatory actions designed to impose costs on Russia for its recent actions in cyberspace. More reports on the Natanz incident suggest that a buried bomb was remotely detonated. David Defore from Webroot has a wake-up call on digital privacy. Our guest is Ganesh Pai from Uptix on MITRE attack evaluations, and ICE ID is taking Emotet's place in the criminal ecosystem. From the CyberWire studios at DataTribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 15, 2021. Today's cyber news is dominated by this morning's announcement of a broad range of U.S. responses to Russian operations in cyberspace. The U.S. administration this morning announced the long-expected set of measures designed to impose costs on Russian threat actors for both election influence operations, for the SolarWinds Compromise, and for other cyber campaigns. The steps taken include sanctions and diplomatic expulsions, and, of course, naming and shaming. U.S. President Biden signed an executive order today intending, quote, "...to demonstrate the administration's resolve in responding to and deterring the full scope of Russia's harmful foreign activities." The White House statement frames the order as a signal that the United States will impose costs in a strategic and economically impactful manner on Russia if it continues or escalates its destabilizing international actions. The objectionable Russian actions include efforts to undermine elections and democratic institutions— and that elections not only in the U.S., but voting in unspecified allied countries. It also includes various other violations of international law, including respect for the territorial integrity of states. Russia's continuing occupation of Ukrainian territory in Crimea is the principal offense against territorial integrity. The White House cites the cooperation of the European Union, the United Kingdom, Australia, and Canada— in imposing sanctions against eight individuals and entities associated with that occupation. With tension rising between Russia and Ukraine, and with menacing Russian troop movements in the region, unilateral Russian provocations along the line of contact in eastern Ukraine, in occupied Crimea, and along Ukraine's borders, the White House statement calls them, the administration made an unambiguous statement of support for Ukraine. Quote, the transatlantic community stands united in supporting Ukraine against, as well as agreeing on the need, for Russia to immediately cease its military buildup and inflammatory rhetoric. End quote. The White House, NSA, the FBI, and CISA all formally attributed the SolarWinds compromise to Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR. To make the attribution utterly clear, they cite the names industry has used to refer to its cyber operations, APT-29, Cozy Bear, and The Dukes. That attribution is offered with high confidence. The administration notes that this software supply chain compromise gave the SVR the ability to either spy on or disrupt more than 16,000 systems worldwide and that most of the affected systems belong to the private sector. NSA's statement described mitigation of known vulnerabilities in the SolarWinds-Orion software supply chain, well-mass malware used against COVID-19 researchers, and network attacks exploiting a VMware vulnerability. NSA's cybersecurity directorate tweeted a warning that Russia's SVR is actively exploiting five publicly known vulnerabilities against U.S. and allied networks. NSA's Director of Cybersecurity, Rob Joyce, joined us on the line earlier today and provided this statement.
2: Today, NSA released a joint advisory with the FBI and DHS's CISA. We highlighted cyber vulnerabilities that have been the target of exploitation by the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR. The vulnerabilities in today's release are part of the SVR's toolkit to target networks across the government and private sectors. We need to make SVR's job harder by taking them away. NSA is urging rapid mitigation by system owners to make attempts at malicious actions less likely to succeed.
1: The SolarWinds incident is particularly troubling because it was a software supply chain compromise that enabled organizations to be targeted easily and at will. The White House thinks this should serve as a warning about the risks of using information and communications technology and services supplied by companies that operate or store user data in Russia or rely on software developments or remote technical support by personnel in Russia. To address those risks, the U.S. government is considering action under Executive Order 13873, the better to protect the information and communications technology and services supply chain against Russian exploitation. The U.S. State Department is expelling 10 Russian diplomats in connection with this activity, the AP reports. The White House statement says the 10 come from Russia's diplomatic mission in Washington and include representatives of Russian intelligence services. And the U.S. Department of the Treasury announced today that it was sanctioning 16 entities and 16 individuals who attempted to influence the 2020 U.S. presidential election, at the direction of the leadership of the Russian government. Four front media organizations associated with three Russian intelligence and security services are singled out as disinformation shops. Southfront, the FSB, Newsfront, FSB, InfoRos, GRU, and the Strategic Culture Foundation, SVR. Pursuant to today's executive order, Treasury now prohibits U.S. financial institutions from participating in the market for any bonds Russia might issue after this coming June 14th. Six Russian tech companies that support the Russian intelligence service's cyber programs are being sanctioned. And, of course, the actions taken by the U.S. today have implications for the evolution of international norms of conduct in cyberspace. The White House statement affirmed the importance of an open, interoperable, secure, and reliable Internet – which it regards as a goal shared by most of the international community, U.S. allies and partners in particular, but which Russian actions undermine. To foster the development of a stable, secure cyberspace, the White House outlined two actions. Quote, First, the United States is bolstering its efforts to promote a framework of responsible state behavior in cyberspace and to cooperate with allies and partners to counter malign cyber activities. End quote. An important part of that will involve training for policymakers and international lawyers on the policy and technical aspects of publicly attributing cyber incidents. The U.S. will begin organizing such training at the George C. Marshall Center in Garmisch, Germany. The training will extend beyond the details of attribution and cover international norms of conduct in cyberspace. Second, the White House says they are reinforcing their commitment to collective security in cyberspace. This involves joint military training in Cyberflag 21-1, a combined exercise that aims at improving cyber defense capabilities and resilience. The UK, France, Denmark and Estonia, at least, will participate. The Jerusalem Post reports that the sabotage at Iran's Natanz uranium enrichment facility, widely attributed to Israel by both the Iranian government and Israeli media, was produced by a remotely detonated explosive device. And finally, January's Emotet takedown by law enforcement left a gap in the criminal ecosystem, now being partially filled by the Iced ID gang, the Record reports. Iced ID began with familiar spam campaigns back in 2017, distributing what the record calls a classic banking trojan. But it's evolved and now functions as a -a malware-as-a-service operation. Our own Rick Howard checked in with Ganesh Pai from Uptix for his views on MITRE ATT&CK evaluations. Here's Rick Howard. I got the chance to talk to Ganesh Pai,
3: the CEO of Uptix, an SQL-powered security analytics platform, about his company's recent participation in the MITRE ATT&CK evaluation program. This relatively new program from MITRE invites security vendors to bring their solutions into an environment so that the MITRE lab rats can throw actual adversary campaigns at them to see if the vendor can detect and prevent them. In this evaluation, MITRE deployed the attack campaigns used by the adversary group FIN-7, also known as CARBONAC, a financially motivated threat group that has primarily targeted the U.S. retail, restaurant, and hospitality sectors since mid-2015. I asked Ganesh why he thought the MITRE attack campaign was good for the industry.
0: It's one of those approaches where there is a third party who is neutral and objective. They have a common evaluation uh, criteria, and they call it as MITRE ATTCK enterprise evaluations. They set up an environment and they work with the vendors to say, do your best. We're going to be doing this pre-canned set of things to do something malicious. And we'll see how well uh, your solution measures up against the framework So they're doing two things. One, giving you a nice framework so that everyone uses the same language. And second, they provide an approach for evaluation where there's a third party objectively providing a quantifiable approach to demonstrating value. They don't rank stack you. They just collect all the data as a part of their findings and present it. And what's nice is they allow those who want to procure technology to objectively evaluate the outcomes. We placed a bet on this quantitative approach to measure even the efficacy of our solution because given the number of vendors out there, we wanted to stand out. And as I said, for us to show something demonstrable in a quantifiable way was important.
3: In these kinds of things, disagreements between the evaluator and the evaluated always happen. I asked Ganesh about how updates worked things out with Miner
0: when they did. The upfront said Carbonac and Fin7 are the two uh, techniques and tactics that we're going to be evaluating vendors against. Mm -hmm. They also outlined that here is around uh, 159 or 160 or that we expect you to hit relative to the number of detections. When we actually went into the evaluation, our experience was actually very nice. They were quite objective when there was any uh, disconnect. And the disconnect was very straightforward. We might not have set a flag right or tuned something because we had the ability to capture the telemetry. But we may not have displayed a finding for one out of the 160 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were nice enough to say that this is what we didn't visibly see on your screen. We looked at it and said, look, here's this tuning flag which was missing. We set that right, and we were fortunate that then they said, yeah, this looks good. Other people's mileage might vary, but if we were to use our engagement with Mitro, as a very pleasant and a very collaborative one to iron out any differences in opinion.
3: Clearly for a vendor, this is an investment in time and resources. I asked Ganesh what it took to get ready.
0: Uh, They outline what the set of techniques are as a series of columns which are laid out one after the other. And then there is the notion of tactics given uh, a technique for a given sub-tactic. They can be 10 or 15 or even more approaches to doing the detection of that tactic.
3: If anybody has heard me speak before, you know that I'm a big fan of crafting prevention controls for all known adversary behavior across the intrusion kill chain. Unfortunately, most of us, vendors and practitioners alike, focus on the technical details of preventing malware and exploits and ransomware and not on defeating the actual adversary. The miter Attack Evaluation Program seems to be a step in the right direction. I asked Ganesh if he thought going through this exercise would change how his engineering team adds new features to his products in the future.
0: The set of things that we came up for detecting Carbonac and Fin7 during the evaluations are fairly generic. The detection for each of the tactics have been coded in a way such that if they get reformulated ever to do a detection of uh, another one, that it's not going to be a whole lot of uh, work for us. The engineering work and the three months that we put in is generic enough that it gives a return on investment for a long time to come.
3: I'm a fan of the miter Attack evaluation program, and it sounds like Ganesh and Uptix is too. If you agree, it might be a good idea to encourage all of the vendors you have deployed in your own security stack to participate in the next one. You might even suggest that it will be a precondition before you renew the contract at the next iteration.
1: That's the CyberWire's Rick Howard speaking with Ganesh Pai from Uptix. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by David DeFore. He is the Vice President of Engineering and Cybersecurity at Webroot. Uh, David, always great to have you back. Great to be here, David, as always. I wanted to touch on uh, the recent uh, uh, hack we saw on Vercata and uh, how that was kind of a a wake-up call when it comes to to folks' digital privacy. Um, what, What thoughts do you have on that? You know, I, I, I'm not going to kind of call
2: out Verkata uh, because they're the ones in, in this instance they got they 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 got caught with a you know an, an issue with a super admin um, uh, password. But I, I got to tell you, I promise you. There are a lot of organizations with this same problem. They just haven't been caught yet. So I'm not necessarily, you know, saying obviously they did something wrong, but I'm not saying that they're the only ones and we need to point a finger. This this is really a, another touch point, a time where we all need to be aware of what's possible. Um, if someone's able to get into something and get, I mean, if, if you're not familiar, you know, they, they got access to 150,000 live cameras and they were showing f- footage uh, for different organizations to to media and stuff like that. So it was a big deal, but we're all affected by this.
1: Yeah. I mean, how do you come at something like a hard-coded credential? I mean, is that you have folks out there hunting for that pro- proactively? Yeah,
2: you know this, and, and and David, you know a lot of the engineers who work for me would laugh at this comment, but I used to write code. Um, and really what you've got to, <laughs> believe it or not, this really starts with the engineers. It, you have to have a good process in place because to, that, that analyzes code that, that is ensuring you're not you know doing uh, things like hard coding passwords. Uh, that, that, because when you're when you're first bootstrapping something, trying to test something, you really just want to quickly get things up and running. But you got to have peer reviews, you've got to have code scans. So it really starts there and then goes out from there. At, at, at different layers of ensuring that, that people are protected.
1: Yeah, because I mean, it's, isn't it accurate that um, a lot of times those things get put in as part of the development process again for the for the uh, convenience of the developers? But then once it goes into production, it, it should be pulled out, and that doesn't always happen.
2: That's exactly what uh, what the case is, and a lot of times, David, believe it or not. It's included for convenience in in like raw source code SDKs, and they say change this once you get it up and running so that you're safe. And a lot of programmers don't take the time even, you know, when you're using that third-party tool. So you're exactly right. It's just a function of a lot of us want to get stuff working. And Believe it or not, security sometimes takes a backseat to stuff, David. We've never seen that before, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> what are your thoughts for the folks downstream who found themselves victim of this? You know, your 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 classic sort of third party thing, where you know I I've contracted with a company like Verkada, and because they weren't doing things hundred percent, now you know the footage of my factory floor is on the nightly news. That
2: <laughs> that is the problem and and i I, you've you've put it in a nutshell how do you verify and you know just like in society where we want to go to the grocery store the the pharmacist you have to have trust at some level and these things will happen and then the question is how do you recover from it um you know you have that processes in place that vet your third parties and you're making sure that the tools you bring in um are 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 as secure as possible because you can only do it as best as you can um, and, and again, that looks, that, that's that whole process, depending on the size of your organization. Um, are you able to vet it? Can you? Can you? You know, what's your exposure if the stuff gets out? Look, if you have a factory floor and they're watching a guy drive a forklift, you're probably not worried too much about it. But if you have a, you know, a customized manufacturing process where one of these cameras is watching that and, and it's intellectual property, you probably want to make sure maybe you don't buy the cheapest uh, available system out there. You, you need to make sure there's something that's been vetted and potentially certified that it that it is secure.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, it's it's such a it's sort of an object lesson in in this whole thing of the supply chain and uh you know from <laughs> from supply chain issues to uh embedded passwords there's something for everybody here.
2: There there absolutely is and it, and it goes back to we have to trust, but, but we can verify. And, and a lot of times cost gets in the way of, of that verification process. And we just need to be aware of it. And this goes for consumers as well, David. I mean, people put stuff in their homes and, and they connect it to their Wi-Fi and they don't know what, what's going on. They don't know if it's calling home to, to some country where they'd they freak out if it was. And you it, yeah. just have to spend more time understanding. And it's easy not to, because we all get busy.
1: Yeah. All right, well David DeFour, thanks for joining us. Hey, great being here, David. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at theCyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It will save you time and keep you informed. It's not just a job, it's an adventure. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Helsman, Haru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.